0: Hello, I'm Andrew Suskind, and I'm a psychotherapist and author based in West Los Angeles since 1992, specializing in trauma and addictions. Welcome to our podcast, which I call It's Not About the Sex also the title of my recent book. Here we focus on all topics related to compulsive sexual behavior, often referred to as sex addiction. In particular, we explore ways to build long-term sustainable recovery while establishing more meaningful connection and greater intimacy. Our intention is to offer fresh viewpoints, brand new perspectives, and practical user-friendly tools toward living a more deeply connected life. Let's get started. Today, my friend and colleague, Alex Katahakis, is going to join us. Alexandra Katahakis, PhD, is a clinical sexologist and clinical director of the Center for Healthy Sex in Los Angeles. She is the author of several books, including Sexual Reflections, a workbook for designing and celebrating your sexual health plan, and the award-winning Mirror of Intimacy, Daily Reflections on Emotional and Erotic Intelligence. So welcome, Alex. I'm I'm so glad you could join us today for this podcast. I know that we've been talking about this for quite a while, and it's really a treat to have you with us today. So welcome.
1: Thank you, Andrew. Thank you for having me.
0: My pleasure. And and. You know, I've known you for more than twenty years, and
1: I, know. I, I, I couldn't believe it when you said that. <laughs> it's
0: crazy. It's, it's yeah. hard to believe since we're only, you know, thirty-five or so or so. <laughs>
1: um,
0: but the the thing about watching your evolution, you know, I think we have these parallel evolutions, but your evolution as a clinician and as a director of a, of a program, the Center for Healthy Sex, it's just really exciting to see how you've expanded and created different ways of, of learning and and sharing with others and, and healing others. And, and I'm really excited about just talking about what Healthy sex. Since we're talking about the Center for Healthy Sex,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, what what healthy sex really means? So, could you share that with our listeners?
1: Yeah, I mean, I appreciate your saying that. And also, I was just thinking as you were saying that that uh, my own professional evolution and personal evolution really reflects, I think, the necessity of people to evolve their sexuality as they evolve mm-hmm. in life. Mm-hmm. And all too often, people adhere to an adolescent sexuality. In other words, they never update Uh, their sexual interests as they age, which is sort of bizarre because we update everything else from our hair to clothes to Mm -hmm. our cars. Um, And so people often don't know what healthy sex is for them because they haven't examined it. Mm -hmm. Um, So in the field of clinical sexology, which is the scientific study of human sexuality, there is no definition for healthy sex because one definition would be colonizing. So really each individual is called to examine their personal sexuality from year to year, decade to decade to ask, what is really true for me today? What maybe once brought me pleasure is now uncomfortable mm-hmm. um, or my body just can't do what it once did. Mm-hmm. Uh, or we see things that we tried maybe in porn or in the media um, that was exciting at one point, but now might feel a little demoralizing or weird. Mm-hmm. So the because sex is so taboo in our culture and most people and grow up with a decent uh, sex education. Um, We're now living in a time where sex and sexuality is being pulled apart. Hopefully, people are getting less shameful messages. And so I'm hoping that people are interested in asking themselves about their sexuality and starting to talk about it with trusted others.
0: Mm. So is, is that kind of like developing a vision for sexual health?
1: I suppose it could be a vision, but mostly it's about a conversation, about saying, well, yeah, how does my body work? What is my sexual arousal cycle? In other words, what turns me on? And Mm. am I willing to admit that to myself? Mm -hmm. And if I admit it, can I tell someone else or do I feel Mm -hmm. too ashamed? Mm -hmm. Is the actual sex act itself problematic or is it that I have a judgment about the fact that I like it? So this is an excavation, I think, Mm -hmm. of one's psyche and um, revealing ourselves to ourselves in ways that even we're embarrassed to know about. And if Mm -hmm. we're embarrassed to know about it, we can't possibly share that with a lover or potential sex partner. So Mm -hmm. starting to talk about it, uh, usually with a therapist or a trusted other, is where the conversation and the change begins. Mm -hmm.
0: I I love that. So, so the starting gate is really the honest conversation. Correct
1: with yes with yourself.
0: Right with yourself, and hopefully (laughs) with someone who who can non-judgmentally hold that, so that you can start to look at all of these dimensions and all of these possibilities.
1: Yeah, and hopefully be curious about it. You know, Mm -hmm. if somebody is lucky, if two people are lucky enough to be in partnership where they don't judge each other, Mm -hmm. but they're curious about the other's interests or proclivities, that doesn't mean you're actually going to do the thing that might freak you out or scare you, Mm -hmm. but you're at least interested in hearing why your partner finds it arousing or what your partner likes about it. Mm -hmm. And it's in that act of having a conversation, um, a conversation that intimacy is born. And in that intimacy is often an eroticism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: And the word that popped out as you're talking is vulnerability to, mm-hmm. to really be able to be vulnerable and take those emotional risks oftentimes does lead to more heat and more intimacy.
1: That's right. That's sort of the inherent paradox in that. And right. uh, People don't understand that. They think that um, if they look at enough porn or they, you know, cheat on their partner, they're they're looking for novelty there. Mm-hmm. Um, but those secrets and lies start to kill sex in a relationship. Mm-hmm. And it is that rigorous vulnerability that says, look, I'm going to tell you what turns me on. And you might want to run screaming from the room. But <laughs> if you just hear me out, if we just have a conversation about it, again, it doesn't mean we have to do it. But I'm letting you know me. And know who I am. And that is novel. And that in and of itself is arousing. Mm,
0: beautiful. I love that idea of rigorous vulnerability. That That's incredible. The other thing I, I heard implied, and I wanted to get your opinion on this, is that we live in a culture that doesn't talk about pleasure and and very often. Or, or certainly sexual pleasure. It's, mm-hmm. it's often... Under the rug somehow. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you open up that conversation, help people really start to look at what feels good and, and what's what their erotic template is all about, etc.?
1: Well, I had the um, good fortune of going to India over the holidays, and I'd wanted to go for, you know, at least as long as I've known you. (laughs) And I'm so grateful I got to go before Mm. COVID. Um, Mm. And I went to a temple that is dedicated to the worship of the feminine there, and it's part of a tantric lineage. And Mm. when people think about tantra, they think about, you know, having sex all night long without orgasming, which is a really Mm -hmm. reductive Understanding of this particular mm. sect of Hinduism, but this this particular way of worship really has to do with the in- 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 mm. pleasure inviting the feminine. And when you think about pleasure, you can have pleasure all day long, that's not sexual. Mm -hmm. So having a cup of tea and the way you prepare your tea can be pleasurable. Mm -hmm. Eating a meal with someone, um, the touch of your partner's hair or hand can be deeply pleasurable if we give ourselves over into the present moment. So I start conversations with people by asking about what sort of pleasure they involve that doesn't necessarily involve genital touch mm-hmm. because there's so many other ways to experience. I mean, the skin is the biggest organ in the body for starters. Mm-hmm. So let's start with you know your big toe or your hand or your arm. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's that sensuality, I think that we have to get acquainted with in ourselves. There's a a fluidity in our movement in the way that we uh, use the five senses that has us starting to be our own best lover. And when we know who we are sexually, where we get pleasure, what delights our senses, then we can communicate that to a partner, so it starts in a quite non-pornographic way, a very simple way of being present in life. Wow.
0: Well, I, I think I have to get myself to India as soon as possible. <laughs> That's fantastic. But I love the the expansion of what Tantra really is because you're right. it It is reductive, but a lot of people think of it just as all night long sexual contact without orgasm.
1: Right. When I told people I was going to a tantric ashram, they were like, oh, my God, like you're going to be having sex for a weekend. (laughs) You know, it couldn't have been further from that. Right. It's a lot of ceremony and um, really teachings and things of that nature.
0: Absolutely. That's great. That's great. I want to hear more, by the way, but we'll have to leave that to another time. Yeah. Yeah. one of the things that has always been a balance in in general for me, but certainly on the podcast, has to do with the difference between clinical sexology and certified sex addiction therapists and how the two can overlap and how they're very different. Mm-hmm. And because you have all of that training under your belt, I'm wondering if you can share a little bit more about the differences, and how they work together or can work together?
1: Sure. Well, I think, first of all, if anybody's listening to this, that struggles with sexual addiction and compulsivity, they want to make sure that they find a therapist who is friendly to that notion, who's not going to tell them that that doesn't exist or it's not a real problem. Um, And that is, unfortunately, some of what can happen out there. But I think sex addiction therapists are very interested and concerned with people who report using sex in ways that are destructive, Um, where sex feels shameful, dirty, bad, it's a source of pain. There's not Mm -hmm. any pleasure in it other than perhaps the momentary orgasm. Um, And so sex has become an albatross, if you will. And sometimes I talk to people about, you know, owning your sexuality versus your sexuality owning you. Mm -hmm. And in sex addiction, your sexuality owns you um, in a desperate plea for feeling um, out of control and Um, sort of hostage to sex and using sex as a way to feel better or manage one's mood. And sex addiction therapists can be very adept at helping people stop those destructive sexual behaviors, Uh, but oftentimes they don't know how to help people go into, um, take it further, how to start to have a healthy sex life, an erotic sex life while they're in recovery from sexual addiction. Mm -hmm. And conversely, sexologists will err on the side of helping that person um, you know, start to have uh, preferred sex without understanding the compulsive and sometimes destructive nature of the sex the person's engaging in. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So in both cases, shame reduction is crucial uh, for people struggling with sex addiction, um, or even if they have sexual desire and dysfunction issues, often it's because of anxiety or shame about sex and sexuality. So um, they overlap, certainly, Um, but um, if somebody's just looking through one lens or the other, they're going to be missing an integral part of the problem when there's a problem of sexual compulsivity.
0: Right, right. So so if somebody is curious about... The idea of them being sexually compulsive versus just liking to have a lot of sex, how, how would they distinguish the two?
1: Well, I think again, probably talking to a qualified professional for starters. Sure. But, you know, one of the questions I think where any addiction is concerned is the first question is how preoccupied am I with it? Mm-hmm. How much time do I take thinking about it, obsessing about it, trying to get whatever it is, whether it's chocolate or cocaine or sex? Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, how many messes do I have in my life because yeah. of it? Because I'm privileging getting into that experience or getting that substance over my relationships with friends and family or learning something new or studying something of interest. Um, those are two of the hallmarks of any addiction is really preoccupation and what we call unmanageability. Mm-hmm. And then feeling like I could take it or leave it. Like, yeah, I really love sex. I mean, that's one of the reasons I became a sex therapist and studied sex, because when, especially in my 20s, I loved sex. Mm -hmm. Um, And yet loving it does not mean that I don't do anything else Mm -hmm. Um, or I'm so consumed with it that I can't Mm -hmm. do anything else.
0: Right. Right. I, I heard a. A long time ago, a scientist on on a documentary, Define Addiction in General, I thought this was really simple and easy. He said that you want to stop, but you can't. Mm. And I thought that was really poignant because if somebody is at that point when it's all-consuming and it's it's just so... Preoccupying and 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 they're not having pleasure anymore, but but they just can't stop. I thought that was a really easy way <laughs> of putting it.
1: It's great. I mean, I think about all the academic arguments about whether sex addiction is real or not, and uh-huh. all these highfalutin diagnostic categories. and right. I love that. If you can't stop, <laughs> you've got a problem. Whatever. Exactly. It
0: is. That's right. That's right. Just just narrow it down to the simplest, right, basic. exactly exactly so shifting gears a little bit i'm wondering how how do people really stay connected or deeply connected in healthy sexy ways in longer term relationships over time
1: well i think this is the challenge of you know the 20th and 21st century because um you know a long long time ago uh, homo sapiens got together for procreation purposes and for propagating the species and now we live at a time where the planet is overpopulated and mm-hmm sex is no longer relegated to procreation. Um, There are many, many, many reasons people have sex on any given day or any given moment. And so for the first time in history, we're endeavoring to um, put sex and intimacy together in long-term committed relationships. And we're doing, you know, kind of a 50-50 job with it because 50% of relationships you know, fall into divorce after a while. And I think that happens because we have a hard time really updating our version of our partners. Um, we tend to reduce them into that which is familiar. So I already know this about you, um, or I'm already sick of what you're saying, or I can finish your sentences for you. And we stop seeing our partners as sexual beings and sexual creatures. And so we don't look at them through um, our erotic eyes. We see them as householders, as parents, as workers, as somebody who you know, bothers us because they leave the proverbial cap off the toothpaste. But we don't take time to gaze into their eyes or see them from afar and remember that sexy thing about them that turned us on at one time. And the the brain and also the dopamine system really requires novelty for activation mm-hmm. and so a close in gaze with your lover you know sitting knee to knee looking into your lover's eyes breathing with them and just noticing who they are without words creates a high level of activation in the nervous system and creates novelty and so we have to make time for that in the same way we make time for a million other things um it's interesting though how people will marginalize their uh, love relationships or their marriages um it's, it's sort of seems to be the last thing people tend to. But if you're going to make time for exercise and, you know, your friends and going out to movies and everything else that you at least once did Mm -hmm. and will hopefully do again, why not make time to connect with your partner um, in a way that has you stoking the erotic fires. And that doesn't mean it has to turn to sex. It's really about the novelty and the sort of interweaving of play that comes with those moments of connection.
0: Mm, that, that's beautiful. And and along those lines, I've been getting more and more conversations in my practice about monogamy about open relationships, about polyamory, and I, I feel like I don't know about you, Alex, but I feel like this is a newer conversation that seems to have come up in the last I don't know five or ten years at most. Mm-hmm. Um, in a way that I haven't heard before, and I was wondering if you could share a little bit about your perspective on on those conversations.
1: Yeah, I really think it's in the last five years. It seems like there's mm. more. Um, yeah. Available now than it ever has been. There was a big article in the New York Times, I think a year ago. Um, more and more books are being written about um, alternative sexual practices and relationships. And so I do think a uh, younger generation is starting to experiment with, you know, multiple partners and uh, multiple ways of being. And I don't know, I don't think we have any way of knowing how this is going to go, but um, I think it's important for people to seek help when they open up their relationships if they're already in one, because I've seen a lot of botch jobs, and you mm-hmm. probably have too, where yeah. somebody thinks they're going to open the relationship and the other person's not really that into it. That's often the case, mm-hmm. uh, but they do it anyway, and then they blow up their relationship. So mm-hmm. I think if people are thinking about doing that, they really do want to engage um. A professional, so they could start to have critical conversations about consent. And what Mm -hmm. does consensual non-monogamy look like? Mm -hmm. What are the contracts that we're going to have? What are the agreements we're going to have? What boundaries will we have? Mm -hmm. How will we protect ourselves and um, each other and our children if children are in the mix? So in other words, how do you do this responsibly in the same way that Mm -hmm. you drink responsibly Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. as opposed to just impulsively doing it? Like I, I had one couple where the female had an affair didn't Mm -hmm. tell her husband and then announced to him that she wanted an open relationship Mm -hmm. and that just came out of left field for him. And so Mm -hmm. he agreed and then he ended up, you know, picking up a woman who was a stalker. Um, and so that became a nightmare. And so you can hear just how this thing unraveled and exploded. Right. So, It's important to educate yourself, I think. And this also goes with the territory of people with alternative sexual practices. Like, you know, people will engage in what they think is BDSM, but really it's not because they haven't studied BDSM. They haven't Mm. met people in the community. They aren't playing by the rules. Mm -hmm. They're just out there, kind of, you know, swinging from the rafters (laughs) and they end up hurting themselves or hurting someone else.
0: Right. So there's a lot of. A lot of cautions that I I hear, but Mm -hmm. I also hear that there's something kind of refreshing because, again, there's some honest conversations that are available that that I've actually found really inspiring. And it, it's mostly my younger clients in the yeah. 20s and 30s. And and so there's something exploratory in all that and a desire to learn about oneself that I, I just find really fantastic. And
1: I do too. Because yeah. I think the problem that we see now with affairs and sex addiction is the lack of consent, the lies. Yeah. Yeah. And so if you're going to do it, you should be honest with the person you say you love the most in the world instead of right. lying to them and yourself so that everybody gets to make a decision. So there really is consent there. Yeah. And yeah. I think that makes a big difference. And also one of the things I think is novel and interesting is defining what monogamy is. Mm. You know, for centuries people have gotten married married and just it was a foregone conclusion they were monogamous, but nobody really knew how they were defining that. Right. So yeah. Be, having an explicit definition for your relationship is important. Mm-hmm. And, and
0: to reevaluate that over time right? Yes because I think the recontracting is can be very intimate as well.
1: I agree. I think you know people that get married and they're still married 25, 30 50 years later yeah uh, why not renegotiate whether or not you still want to do this thing right. every 10 years?
0: Exactly. And, and it's really thoughtful and, and respectful if,
1: mm. if,
0: if partners are willing to, to bring that back to the table. So I, I couldn't agree more. So a, a little separate issue um, when it comes to men. And I, I see a lot of men in my practice. Uh, is, is there such a thing as, as male sexual fluidity? And, and if men do have sex with other men, does that mean that they're gay?
1: Yeah, I just love this particular issue because Mm. for years we were very, very accepting about female sexual fluidity. If girls hold hands or women put their arms around each other and kiss or um, also we know from studies that women Are aroused by just about anything. Like if you have women watching, you know, pictures of bonobos having sex or men (laughs) having sex or insects having sex, they lubricate. Um, So women tend to uh, be much more sort of pansexual in the way the organism, the physical body responds. But we've always been very skittish about this idea that men would be sexually fluid. And I do think there's a continuum. And again, we see this. From studies where there are men that are strictly 100% heterosexual and they don't respond to images of males um, and others who are very much on a continuum. And we've seen homosexual behaviors in males from the beginning of times, especially in fraternities, certainly, you know, on football fields. Um, there's a lot of padding of rear ends that go on, goes on on football fields. <laughs> this is true. Um, as a, as a a form of affection and endearment. Really? Um, and so there's a book by Jane Ward called Not Gay that you're probably familiar with. Mm-hmm. And it was fascinating because she was very interested at the time that Craigslist was super active about why mm-hmm. there were so many white men, and it was specifically Caucasian men, who were having sex with men just because it was pleasurable. So now we're back mm-hmm. to pleasure. Okay. And when she really investigated it, and these men often identified as having Heterosexual, but they were having sex with men. What determined whether they were gay or not was when they, because they said they weren't gay. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's sort of like your scientist saying, you know, if you can't stop, you have a problem. So if a man is having sex with another man surely for pleasure, but they're not interested in a romantic relationship. They don't want to set up a life with a male. And they say, I'm not gay, it's just pleasure for pleasure. Then you're looking at someone who's probably much more fluid and less uptight about their
0: fluidity. Mm -hmm. And I was just gonna say that that back in the nineties or before, things were so categorical. Gay, straight, bisexual. Mm -hmm. We didn't have all of these other
1: iterations.
0: (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And and years ago, years ago I was at a conference and and someone said that they were heteroflexible. Yeah. I never heard yeah. that before, and I thought that's fantastic. You it know, is, th- th- yeah. they're coming up with this new language for him, really choosing to to live as a heterosexual man who happens to like to have sex occasionally with other men.
1: Right, who's open?
0: Okay, that's right. There's
1: even a broader term now that I've heard called gender-sex relationship diversity. <laughs> Um, and you can Google that and see that it's actually <laughs> a thing in the therapeutic community. So uh-huh, rather uh-huh. than all these, you know, because the LGBTQ acronym now is got triple A's and an S in it and something else. Right, right. Um, so rather than that, to say that there is gender, sex, relationship, diversity, and all of these binaries and categories are, yeah. you know, dissolving into each individual, again, each human being gets to define who they are and what mm. is healthy sex for them.
0: Sure. It's a lot to keep up with, but I, but I have to say it's it's inspiring to hear yeah. the questioning. It's beautiful.
1: I agree. I think it's so inspiring and it's an exciting time yeah. um, for people to be able to define things for themselves. As long as they don't get overwhelmed and lost, um, or hurt right. in some ways. Right. Um, that's what I worry about for young people is that, you know, we all experimented and did things. And I certainly hurt myself with sex and mm-hmm. sexuality. I'm not going to mm-hmm. lie that mm-hmm. I didn't do things that were t- destructive or hurtful, but, you know, that's how we learn. But I just hope right. people don't go too far off the rails um, right. in their exploration and that they don't feel pressured by um, popular culture to do things that don't feel right for them and that they are open to try things that do feel Right.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. My last question, which is a big one for you, is is what what do you see as the future of sex in America?
1: Well, I do see this, you know, binary going the way of the dodo bird. Um, <laughs> <Thank goodness. laughs> yeah, that's right. And that, um, we're going to see much more elasticity in, um, you know, gender and sexual and relationship expression as we go along. Um, And so that's interesting to me. One of the things that worries me is that um, we not move towards a more solo sexuality, uh, which is really what's happened in Japan. That um, the more people, you know, now especially we're more on Zoom than ever before um, and social distancing, the, the more we disconnect from our humanity and each other and the more we plug into our laptops, whether it's a vibrator or a webcam or something else the more we're really Mm self-stimulating, and the less relational we are. And the relational is where you and I started talking about. And I firmly believe, and this is not a moral judgment at all, that the profound erotic, especially as we age, lies in the relational. Otherwise, it's just pornographic. It's about getting off, which is great and pleasurable. And, you know, one of the things I think is just spectacular is how all the vibrators today, I mean, there was a myriad of Options and colors and choices mm. all recharge by way of a USB port, not a battery. <laughs> um, so we're all, you know, ready to plug and play. And that's mm. fun, but it does not take the place of human connectedness and um, experiencing sex and sexuality in deeply erotic and profound ways with another human being in person. Mm. So I hope we can experiment and play around, but also not lose sight of the fact that we are gregarious creatures and we really need human contact.
0: Wow, yeah. And, and I don't know if you know this, but I have the Johan Hari quote mm-hmm. on my website. Uh, the opposite of addiction isn't sobriety. The opposite of addiction is connection.
1: Yeah, lovely. And,
0: and so I couldn't agree with you more that, of course, there's erotic pleasure in in oneself that we can have fun and and yet connection is really what we're biologically wired for and and what helps us as a species really feel more um whole and more more fulfilled so i thought that's a that's such an important message so on that note anything else that you want to leave our listeners with today
1: I don't think so. Maybe you and I should go have a cigarette.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I would love to. We'll have a virtual cigarette. Exactly right.
1: Especially since we don't smoke, but (laughs) a metaphorical one.
0: (laughs) That's right. That's right. (sighs) Well, once again, Alex, I, I always enjoy being with you <laughs> and so you. glad you could be here today and, and and really be a part of such an important message and an important way of contextualizing what sex and, and healthy sex really means and how to explore that within oneself and within relationships. So thank you so
1: much. I, just, thank I you. so
0: appreciate you.
1: Yeah. And thank you, Andrew. Thank you for all you do.
0: All right. Take good care. Thank you so much for listening today. It was terrific sharing this time with Alex Ketahakis, who is a very talented colleague and friend of mine, and discussing this really significant topic that affects each and every one of us. Be sure to give us a five-star rating on iTunes, or please share our podcast on Spotify, And if there's any topics you might like us to discuss in the future, just let us know. I look forward to you joining us on future podcasts, and thanks again for being with us today.